0: Well, I don't know how I'm going to follow up that, but I think did a great job. I'm so uh, just encouraged sitting there listening to a young man who has a desire to share the gospel with his peers. Um, this is really powerful, really encouraging. So um, yeah, I just, I pray for all your young people here that they would continue to, to do that, to grow in that desire and just, yeah, for the courage and the strength to do that. It is hard out there. And that's kind of what you guys have been going through for this series, right? Seeing the world, the climate that we live in and how it has been affecting us. And so today, today, to that end, if you have a Bible with you, would you open it now to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is the final sermon in the Air We Breathe series, and I'm actually just thrilled to be a part of this series. Um, Some of you may know that Pastor Levi attends the preaching workshop um, that Pastor Paul hosts at Cornerstone every week, and I, through my internship there, have had the, the wonderful privilege of just being a part of the workshop. And just reading through the sermons in this series, hearing what... Um, Pastor Levi has been preaching, what he's been faithfully diagnosing in our culture and the subtle assumptions that have infiltrated the church has just been a joy and a pleasure to read uh, his sermon, so I'm just thrilled to be a part of this series. We can't help but breathe in the air around us, and it's hard not to be changed by that air. And this morning we're looking at one of these attitudes, one of the dispositions of our society that has infiltrated the church. One that has caused immense division and hurt among Christians. Correction avoidance. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Levi talked about confrontation avoidance. Our tendency to avoid rebuking and correcting one another. And this week, we're looking at the flip side of that idea. Our natural tendency to avoid correction. This has been an issue ever since the beginning of humanity, ever since the fall If you remember back in the garden, God came and looked for Adam and Eve, and they hid from him. They knew they would be corrected, and they wanted to avoid that. We've been doing it forever. Yet it's only become easier in this day and age. It is altogether too easy to drown out any corrective voices, to ignore those who tell us what we don't want to hear, to surround ourselves with people who will affirm our thoughts, our beliefs, and our opinions. And that's what Paul warned Timothy is going to happen. So let's turn our attention there now. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in 2 Timothy chapter, one, chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So here in this letter, Paul is preparing Timothy for pastoral ministry, and he warns Timothy that he must be committed to the preaching of the Word, because people are going to wander away from the true preaching of God's Word in order to find teachers who will suit their own passions, teachers who will tell them what they already want to hear. If you have your Bible still open in front of you, I want you to look back just two verses before the beginning of our text this morning, to 2 Corinthians 3 verses 16 and 17. And these are verses that we're pretty familiar with, pretty well known. They read this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul commands Timothy here in chapter four to be ready in season and out of season, to be ready at all times, to preach the word of God, which is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this same emphasis is again repeated in chapter 4, verse 2, where Timothy is given the instructions to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort his congregation. The problem is our default inclination is to resist this kind of teaching. We don't want to be reproved. We don't want to be corrected. We don't want to be rebuked. We're encouraged to change. We want to be told that we're perfect just the way we are. We want to believe that we've been right all along. We want to be affirmed in our opinions and beliefs. So this morning, we're going to spend some time in this text, but we're also going to zoom out and look at what the whole Bible has to say about this issue of avoiding correction. But I think all of this leads us to the question of why. Why do we avoid correction? And there are a number of reasons, but this morning I want to highlight four. And the first reason that we avoid correction is because we are all idolaters at heart. And I find this in the text this morning, in verses 3 to 4. Look there once again in your Bibles with me. We read there, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, rather than sit under teaching that corrects our biases and assumptions, we seek out those teachers who have the same passions and preferences as we do. And we saw this clearly over the last number of years in the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. The number of Christians who switched churches over the last three years because they sought to find a teacher who preached exactly what they believed about COVID 19 is alarming. And that's just one example. I'm sure if we spend any time thinking about it, we can come up with numerous examples of people leaving a Bible preaching, a true faithful Bible preaching church, to go sit under the teaching of someone who will tell them what they want to hear whether it be about COVID-19, human sexuality, worship style, you name it. John Calvin famously said in his Institutes that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That's what's going on here. That we consistently elevate our preferences, our opinions and our beliefs to a place of idolatry. We cling so desperately to these idols that rather than entertain the idea that we might be wrong or listen to opposing views with an open mind, we run away from any sort of corrective voice. I love the way that Donald Guthrie highlights the flaw in this approach. He says this in his commentary on this chapter. Those with no no more serious intentions than to satisfy their own desires will not only lack sufficient discernment to differentiate between truth and myth, but will in fact turn their ears away from the truth, which suggests a refusal to hear it. You see, the problem is when our desires, our preferences, and our biases become the top priority, we end up in a place where we turn away from the truth, where we refuse to hear truth in order to hear what we want. That's what Paul is highlighting here in this letter. The fact that we care so much about our personal interests, about our hobby horses, our own biases and opinions, that we are unwilling to submit those things to the word of God. Someone driving around town with a flag cussing out Justin Trudeau is going to have a very hard time submitting to a verse like 1 Peter 3.17 where we are told in no uncertain terms to honor the emperor. Look, We all have our biases and our preferences. We all have things that we are passionate about. The problem is when we elevate these things to where they are more important than the word of God. They need to be held under God's word in submission to his truth. Unfortunately, our biases and desires aren't often in line with the word of God. And so we need to let go. We need to be corrected by God's word yet we care too much about them. We worship these ideas, and so we avoid correction. And the second reason we avoid correction is because we forget who we are. This really is an extension of the first idea, in that when we elevate our preferences and our opinions above the Word of God, when we make idols out of them, we begin to lose sight of our identity. We lose sight of who we are, Consider for a moment what the Bible says here in Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We are pure in our own eyes. We think more of ourselves than we are. We forget who we are. For example, we often like to think that we are rational beings, that if we're presented with a choice, we consider all the variables We carefully come to a logical and rational conclusion on the matter. But this is far from the truth. In Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, he describes the way we use reason not as a method of coming to a logical and rational decision, but rather he uses the analogy of a press secretary. Just as a press secretary's job is to make the president's decisions look good, so we use reason to make ourselves look good. We actually make snap decisions, and then we use reason after the fact to come up with a way to justify those decisions to ourselves and to others. We use reason to make ourselves look good. Because we need to. Because we have made idols over these snap decisions, of these opinions, these beliefs, these preferences. Because we forget who we are, and we have over-identified with our opinions and preferences. We, lo- we have lost sight of the fact that this world is not our home, that we have been bought with the blood of Christ, that we are now citizens of heaven. And when we lose sight of that, we naturally over-identify ourselves with this world, with our opinions, our preferences, our political stances. And then we use reason to justify and defend those positions for all it's worth in order to protect our sense of self-worth. And because of this natural process, this natural process, this natural result of the fall, we avoid correction at all costs. We don't put ourselves in a position where we're being told that we are wrong. where We're being told that we have fallen short, where we receive rebuke, correction, encouragement to change and grow. You see, if my identity isn't in my opinions or in my hobbies or my preferences or my political views, if I realize I belong to Christ, then truth and correction is not a burden but a blessing. If my identity is in the one who paid the penalty for my sins upon the cross and has purchased me with his blood, then I am able to consider trials and tribulations, corrections and rebukes to be a blessing because they help make me more like him. When I remember who I am, then I am able to see that becoming more like Christ, being changed and molded into the image of God, is far more important, far more valuable than holding on so tightly to my opinions and beliefs. We need to remember who we are. Because when we forget, it leads to us avoiding correction. It leads to us not becoming the people we are meant to be. And this leads to the third reason we avoid correction. And that's simply because receiving correction is hard. This is the simplest of the three reasons. It really preaches itself. But I want you to consider for a moment what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Hebrews twelve five to 6 reads, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord disciplines, chastises, reproves, and corrects his children. Yet there's a reason the Bible here needs to remind us not to be weary of the Lord's correction. Because we do get weary. Because it's not easy. It is difficult. It's not natural for people to receive correction joyfully. I don't imagine any two-year-old has ever thanked their parents for putting them on time A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Levi talked about how we have a tendency to avoid confrontation. And although the Bible tells us that we need to be willing to correct and confront one another in love when it's necessary, we often avoid doing it. I think part of that reason is because it is so often poorly received. We are afraid to correct one another because we often do not receive correction well. We get defensive. We lash out in anger and hurt. Because it is painful. It is difficult to hear that you have done something wrong or that you are wrong about an issue. It's not easy to hear. What is easy is to ignore all those corrective voices. It is easy to put yourself in a position where you're only hearing a voice that affirms your thoughts and actions. And that is easier now more than ever. Sure, I can go to church once a week, and maybe the pastor might challenge me or say some convicting things from the word of God. But then I go home and I listen to various podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs, whatever it might be that tells, that alleviates any sense of correction or conviction I might have. I can go and listen to countless hours of people telling me that I'm good, telling me what I already believe. I don't need to be changed or convicted The internet has made it unbelievably easy to do exactly what the Apostle Paul warns Timothy is going to happen. The internet makes it so easy to find teachers who suit our own passions and desires. And not only that, but it's actually designed to do that. It's designed to be an echo chamber. Often people talk about the internet as a mere tool. It's just something that's out there. It can be used for good or for bad something like a hammer or a screwdriver. The problem is, my hammer doesn't care whether I use it or not. But the internet does. The internet has motive. The people making the websites have motives. They make money off of people clicking links, viewing web pages, spending time on their sites. So if you're interested in crocheting, for example, and you Google something about crocheting, then you will see more and more things about crocheting. If you believe the earth is flat and you watch a YouTube video explaining why the earth is flat, then you will see more and more videos telling you that the earth is flat. The internet is a giant echo chamber. It is a confirmation bias machine. It is altogether too easy to do as the Apostle Paul warns, to turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. It is far, far harder to be corrected, to sit under teaching, to listen to friends and loved ones tell you what you don't want to hear. It is far easier and far less painful to surround ourselves with voices telling us exactly what we want to hear. It is easier to be told that we are right than to be told that we are wrong. Wide is the path that leads to hell. And many are those who walk it. But narrow is the path that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Because receiving correction is hard. We need to be resolved to do the hard thing. And this leads to our fourth and final reason that we avoid correction. And that's because we forget that we need it. You see, we are self-justification machines. We've kind of already talked about this, that our initial response to almost any situation is to justify and defend ourselves. We use reason for this exact purpose. And I think we're all aware of this at one level or another. This is the reason we often resort to blame shifting when we're corrected or given criticism. It's the reason we jump to defending ourselves and lashing out at the person who gives negative feedback. We have this innate sinful nature to defend and justify our actions to ourselves. And this blinds us to our need for correction. And Lord knows we sorely need correction. I don't think I need to spend too much time proving that point home. The Bible is explicitly clear that we all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Romans 3.23 says that exact thing. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 53 reminds us that there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We have broken compasses. And if we are left to our own devices, if we follow our broken, misguided hearts, we will go down the path straight to hell. All those voices that we surround ourselves with telling us that we're good, telling us that we don't need to change, are leading us into destruction. We need correction. We need a voice telling us we are on the wrong path, that we are chasing after the wrong things. You see, correction is a gift from God. It is his way of shepherding us like the dumb lost sheep that we are. We cannot be left to surround ourselves with people telling us that it's all good, that we're right all along. We need to be corrected and reminded of what is true time and time again because we forget, which is also what we see in our text this morning, that God does in fact provide us with loving wise correction. And he does that in three ways, which is our final question. How does God correct us? And the first way we see is clear to see in the text this morning. God corrects us with his word. We see that clearly in verses 1 and 2 of Timothy chapter 4. Paul begins this chapter by charging Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. That's Paul's instruction here. Knowing the heart of his people, knowing that we are prone to wander, to leave the God we love. The answer is to preach the word. We already saw this morning in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the word of God is profitable, that it is inspired by him. We need it for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You see, the word of God is the standard for correction. It's the thing we compare ourselves to. I remember a time when I was working in construction and I was framing condos with my dad's company. And they told me the story of this time when my brother-in-law worked for the company. And what we would do is we would build these walls all on the ground and then we would stand them up in big sections And as people were holding the walls up, someone would go grab the level and we would nail a brace to the wall to hold it straight. Well, my brother-in-law, rather than using the level, decided to look past the wall to a light post about 200 feet away. And he lined up the wall with the light post. And it looked good, so we nailed it level. And then when he stepped back, he saw that the wall looked like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That light post was on a huge angle. It wasn't anywhere close to level. But that's what happens when we try to use anything other than the right standard as a means to judge whether or not we're right. It may look good from where we're standing, but when we gain proper perspective, we will show that we are way out of line. We need the Word of God to correct us and to guide us. It is a gift from God, the fact that He chose to speak to us through His Word, to give us a written form of his revelation to us. So we need to be people of the word. People who are immersed in it. People who are reading it daily. Who are listening to it faithfully preached and explained. People who are open and willing to receive the truth that is in God's word. To be changed by it. Because the word of God is the beginning and the end of all correction. It is the standard that all other forms of correction live up to, which leads to the second way that God corrects us, which is with pastors and elders. You see, first and Second Timothy and Titus are often referred to as the pastoral epistles, because in these books, Paul is instructing Timothy and Titus on what it means to be a spiritual leader in the church, and what it means to be a pastor and an elder. The point is that the pastors and elders are called to shepherd the flock of God's people. As Paul reminds Timothy here in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Notice the four instructions in this verse. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That is essentially a brief summary of what pastors and elders are to do. They are responsible for the preaching of the word in your church. They are responsible for reproving and rebuking sin in the congregation. They are to exhort and encourage you to live in a way that honors and glorifies God. Yet I love the qualifier that Paul adds here with complete patience and teaching. You see, your pastors and elders are under shepherds of Jesus Christ, the good and perfect shepherd. They are to lead you, to guide you, to correct you, but with the love that Christ himself has for you, with tenderness and patience in teaching. I love the way the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 5. He writes this to the elders. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Brothers and sisters, God has given you a gift of godly men who care deeply for you and your soul's. Men who have been charged to oversee this body of believers, to shepherd them well. Sometimes that shepherding takes the form of difficult conversations and rebukes. But always it takes the form of lovingly and faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God. So that everyone here, pastors and elders included, should be challenged, corrected, and transformed by God's word. A number of weeks ago, Zion helpfully highlighted our natural aversion to this process, our disdain for submitting to the authority that God has placed above us. He pointed out our need for such authority, which we have also seen this morning, in God's graciousness in giving to us pastors and elders. God recognizes our wandering hearts. He has placed good, godly men in this church to guide you, to correct you for your benefit, And for the glory of God. And then thirdly and finally, God corrects us with Christian friendship. Now this point is not as explicitly clear in the text. But it's implicit in the fact that God has chosen to inspire the writing of this letter from Paul to Timothy with his Holy Spirit. He has chosen to speak to all of us through the Apostle Paul. Yes, this was a letter written to an individual person. But in God's wisdom, in his inspiration, in his sovereignty, it has been written for the benefit of all of us. The benefit for the church. As the Apostle Paul also reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So we are one body, and as one body, we are are called to hold each other accountable to the word of God. Often, our brothers and sisters in Christ are the way that God uses to correct and to reprove us. And this often takes the form of close Christian friendship. Proverbs is a wonderful book, and it speaks much of what it means to be corrected, of the wisdom of seeking correction. And it tells us that iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched the way a blacksmith sharpens a sword or a knife, but it doesn't look very pleasant for the sword. It usually involves a lot of sparks, of literal bits of metal burning away to leave a sharp and useful tool behind. And it's the same way for us. It is painful. It is difficult. It is not an easy process. It can be difficult to give correction, as we've seen already. It can be difficult to receive correction as well. It is a hard process. It leaves wounds. But that is the benefit of Christian friendship. As Proverbs also reminds us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It is far Far better to have close Christian friends who know you, who love you enough to speak the hard truth to you, than to surround yourself with people who will flatter you, who will tell you want, what you want to hear, to surround yourself with enemies who the devil will use for your destruction. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need Christian friendship. We need people with which we can have real, deep, meaningful conversations not just people who we talk about whatever TV show we are watching or about the football game. We need people who we can be vulnerable with. People who are in the trenches with us, fighting the same fight, striving to grow into the same image. People who will lift us up as we stumble. People who will speak the truth we need to hear. Receiving correction is a difficult process. But it is well, well worth the pain. As the Apostle James reminds us, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, God cares deeply about our holiness And he has provided wonderful tools and resources to maintain and preserve our holiness. Tools and resources for our correction. You see, all correction starts and ends with God's word. Should be shaped and be guided by his truth. God has given us pastors and elders to speak that word. To oversee us, to be examples for us. That we might imitate them as they imitate Christ. He has given us Christian friends who are striving with us towards the same goal of being transformed day by day, degree by degree, into the image of Christ, that we might glorify God in all that we do. So let us this morning resolve to be people of the word. Let us resolve to speak to one another the truth in love. Let us resolve to receive correction well, that we might be salt and light for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you this morning, Lord, aware of our need for correction, aware of the fact that we have fallen short, Lord, that not one of us here is perfect, that is above rebuke or correction, Lord. So help us not only to receive correction, but to seek it out, Lord, to desire that we might change and grow and be transformed. Lord, help us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers. Lord, to seek your truth. God, I pray through your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord, you would open our eyes. Lord, to see you clearly. Lord, that as we gain a better understanding of who you are, of your righteousness, your goodness, your glory, God, that we would realize how far short we have fallen. We would realize our need for change. But Lord, that we would also realize the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you have sent your son that while we were still sinners, he came and died for us. Lord, that no matter how far short we are, Lord, there is hope, there is grace, that we are being transformed by your Holy Spirit in us from one degree of glory to the next. So God, I pray that you would work that process in us. Lord, fill us with a love for you, a love for your word, a love for one another, but that we might be salt and light for your glory. Amen.